This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The bottom line for me in reading all these stories is that Diane Oliver, again, had so much promise. Mm -hmm. Young, gifted, and black. Hi, I'm Donnie Walton. And I'm Disha Filia. And this is the Ursa Podcast, where we geek out on all things short fiction. On this podcast, we'll interview authors, discuss collections and stories we love, and shine a light on new writers and those who never got their due. Speaking of which, today we pay tribute to the work of Diane Oliver, who left a legacy for generations of Black women writers coming behind her. But we're not just talk, we're publishers too. Over at ursastory.com, we've created a new home for short fiction from some of today's most thrilling writers, as well as emerging voices, with stories you can read on your phone and audio stories that you can listen to right here in your favorite podcast app. We're doing all this, of course, with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or going to ursastory.com slash join. And so, as Disha mentioned today, we are paying tribute to the work of Diane Oliver, which is a name that I wasn't familiar with before we started working on this podcast. But I'm going to open the conversation with a question for you, Disha. And the question is, where were you in your writing life by age 22? I was nowhere in my <laughs> life. Well, you know what? I, I was in the phase where I was having experiences that I would later write about <laughs> in my writing life. At 22, um, I got married. Wow. I got married. I mean, I gosh, we were way too young. And, um, and I was being really practical. I had always enjoyed writing, but I had graduated the year before with a degree in economics from Yale and was looking to do something in business, whatever that was, and crashed and burned there in like nine months. <laughs> and then, uh, so at 22, I hadn't gone back to get my master's in teaching, but I was sort of on the cusp of you know, making this pivot, but writing was nowhere in the mix for me. But I was having these really foundational experiences of, you know, figuring out who I was and who I wanted to be in the world and, and what would become, you know, a marriage that would end a divorce. And all of that later shows up, you know, in my writing. But at the time, I had no idea what was to come. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, age 22, I was living clear across the country in Portland, Oregon, and also being a practical minded person, you know, working in journalism, I was actually working on the copy desk, reading other people's writing Mm. and having these formative experiences. And whatever writing I did was probably dedicated to the knuckleheads who were breaking my heart and like terrible, terrible poetry, (laughs) like tortured purple prose. Like all of those things. But the reason I asked that question is because in her 22 short years on this earth, Diana Oliver was a writer who was just doing the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Like she had written six published short stories published. So who knows how much more she actually had written. And a little bit of background information about her. She was a native of the South like us from Charlotte, North Carolina. 
grew up black middle class in the 1940s and 50s with all this history sort of unfolding around her, of course, this pivotal moment in the United States, was friends with a student uh, who integrated a high school in Charlotte uh, when she was growing up and would later be inspired by that experience as well as the regular things about being a young woman in the time. Uh, She went to undergrad at UNC Greensboro, where she published her first short story called Key to the City in the Campus Literary Magazine. That's where many of us, I think, got our first publications. And in 1964, she was doing big things. Like she was selected as a guest editor for Mademoiselle. She got into the Iowa Writers Workshop. She wrote three other stories, all of which we'll be discussing today. And was a breath away, Disha, like a month mm-hmm. away from getting her MFA in the spring of 1966 when she was killed in a motorcycle accident in Iowa City, which has all these alleyways. And that's how the accident happened. I think a car kind of came out of the alleyway and hadn't been looking. Mm-hmm. And she was on the back of this motorcycle with someone who was driving the motorcycle and and was killed. She was so close to graduating that she had a thesis on file which is very, just gave me goosebumps when I found that out. And she was also an activist, which I think inspired a lot of what she wrote about in terms of themes. Mm -hmm. Um, She did work with Operation Head Start, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, of course, and the Students for a Democratic Society. And so just to know, you know, to, to learn that there was someone, a Black woman from the South like us, that had so much promise and had such, you mm-hmm. know, a career just on the brink and yeah. and we lost her. And to know that I'm just finding out about her in in 2021. How did you find out about her, Disha? It was just happenstance. And and I'm like you, I'm I'm 50 years old. I've been writing for 20 years, never heard of her, you know, and, and I just want to pause to say, you know, guest editor at Mademoiselle and, and she was at Iowa. And when we think of these, you know, very white literary spaces and the struggles that, you know, we have in these spaces now, you know, right. to think that she was in those spaces and thriving, but we never heard about it. And, you know, and, you know, obviously, you know, more than likely because of her untimely passing. But it just so happened that the uh, critic and short story writer that I know, um, Michael Gonzalez, reached out and said, hey, I'm working on this series on sort of unsung Black literary heroes. And there's this woman, Diane Oliver, and, you know, Neighbors is her most famous short story. And I'm like, what? what? How most famous? I never heard of her, much less this short yeah. story. And, you know, but she only, you know, and he he gave me, you know, the biography that you just shared. And I was just stunned that, you know, I'd never heard of her. But once, you know, he he gave me the spiel, you know, just the basics. I just knew that I had to tell you about it. I was like, we have to look at her work and, yeah. and talk about her. I mean, a completely new discovery decades mm-hmm. and decades later. And to know that, you know, I think she's, her work had been um, anthologized by Gloria Naylor, you know, to know the effect that she had mm-hmm. on some of those Black women writers that came after her. It was just something that I was really excited to dig into. And we're going to do a really deep dive here. Um, we're going to talk about four of the stories that she published in her lifetime. A warning, because we are going to go deep, there will be spoilers. Um, But we're going to put into the show notes uh, links to those stories so you can read them as well. 
What was your overall experience kind of discovering these stories and doing that deep dive? You know, the, the her untimely death just loomed over everything. Yeah. And after each one, I kept thinking, you know, where would she, you know, 10 years later, you know, what would the story be? Because I felt that when women are at black women are at the center of her stories, Southern black women, working class Southern black women are at the center of her stories. And the overall feeling I got is that these were women that were sort of resigned, Mm. you you know, given whatever circumstances, you know, they were in. And I kept wishing, I was like, and I, I'd love to see when she got to the point in her career where the women resist. <laughs> you know, I was yeah. waiting for this like resistance. Like that's the arc of her talent and her career that I imagined that, that we missed out on. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's really something to think about. I was thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, there wasn't a term back then to encapsulate YA. <laughs> and I feel mm-hmm. like... A couple of the stories we're going to talk about really do that thing that YA does well, which is to present a character who is sort of young enough to be learning things for the first time and sort of coming to terms with some things in the world, and yet old enough to worry, you know? Mm -hmm, And that mm -hmm. sort of tension between those two things is something that like gave the story interest. And also just seeing her trying to stretch the other two Mm -hmm. stories which we'll talk about, have a protagonist who, you know, is sort of a mother of like five children and and the struggles that she goes through there, which is something that Diane Oliver didn't have firsthand experience with. But the fact Mm -hmm. that she was able to sort of stretch that perspective, um, Mm -hmm. you know, made me think about, you know, like you said, what might have been, what other Mm -hmm. kinds of perspectives she might have tried to explore in her lifetime. Because she did something that I, you know, some writers struggle with, which is she wrote outside of her own direct experience, but she did it without othering, without pathologizing, without fetishizing. You know, there was such um, grace and such a knowing and a respectfulness to which she wrote these very human very complex characters. Um, And that's a sweet spot that not everybody can hit. Exactly. That that sort of psychological sophistication to be able mm-hmm. to do that. So impressive. I just can't believe she was 22, 22. years old. And wrote, right. I'm assuming, many of these stories younger than that because that was the age of her death. So it's just, it's just astonishing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So moving into each individual story, the first one we're going to discuss is Key to the City. This was her first story. She published it by the art and literary magazine of the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. uh, And then it was also published by Red Clay Reader. She used this one, I hear, to apply to the IRA Writers Workshop, and that's what got her in. I'm an alum of that program, and it's very Mm -hmm. stressful kind of 
feeling the confidence to have a story to get in there. It is, you know, it does have a legacy of being very white. And I, I find myself wondering what her experience was there in that, in that time in history. Where you can read it in full is the Greensboro Readers 1968 collection. We'll put that in show notes. And that compiled writing from graduates of that program, UNC Greensboro. And what it's about, so it's the story of Nora. She is freshly graduated from high school in small town Georgia. And Nora has big college dreams and two little sisters, Maddie and Baby Cake. And the story starts with Nora sort of imagining Chicago, where she and her mother and her sisters are moving. They're supposed to be joining the patriarch who's already there, kind of getting them set up. They've discussed Nora going to a city college and setting her sisters behind her on the same path. And the story follows Nora through the family's preparations for the trip. She's packing, she's keeping her sisters in line as their mother finishes up her last shift as a maid. They're all coordinating with the neighbors who are helping the family move and holding on to some of their stuff. And on the trip, on the bus, Baby Cake gets carsick and... Nora's mother asks her to ask the bus driver to stop, but the bus driver ignores her. And when the bus suddenly lurches, Nora falls onto a white passenger who calls her basically a dirty nigger. And it's a foreshadowing for disaster in the story. So when they arrive at the bus terminal, the father is not there. And Nora calls this number that he's given And at the number, nobody's even heard of the father. So I'm going to read just a a small section that is toward the end of the story. She tried to brush the hair from her face, but when she removed her fingers, they were damp. She stood outside until her eyes were dry. Nora went back to the station bench and whispered to her mother, who was sitting down quietly. She and Mama agreed they would spend the night in the terminal just in case. She watched her mother cover baby cake with a coat, her face turned from Nora as if afraid she might cry. Nora wondered if she had known all the time. Strange that it was morning already. Outside, the sky was still dark. Later, they would call the welfare people, something they'd never done before, and they would find them a place to stay. Really upsetting ending. (laughs) And there was this sense of dread that I had from the beginning. And at first I thought it was that they weren't going to be able to leave. Yeah. And so when they got on the bus, I was like, okay, you know. And so she built that, she wrote that tension in so wonderfully. Like every moment there's a potential for something to go very wrong. I mean, the moment that I can think of where I felt, uh uh-oh, was when... They are at the bus station and the mother is very carefully counting out the bills for yes. the bus trip. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, oh no, oh no, they don't have enough. Oh God. <laughs> and I'm calculating like there. everybody came to see them off. If everybody can give like 50 cents, maybe, you know, like she really created that fear, um, yeah. that stress. She brought us right into just how tenuous their circumstances were. There's a real eye on money, um, which is a topic mm-hmm. that I don't think gets enough attention in in fiction in general. But mm-hmm. um, Nora has this particular set amount of money that she has herself, like mm-hmm. separate from the mother. And throughout the piece, she's kind of like, spending a nickel for a popsicle for the sisters. And it's just very 
um, meticulous the way that mm-hmm. Diane Oliver is sort of tracking each little nickel and like Nora understanding that her money is dwindling and mm-hmm. being a, a bit worried about that, which I thought was really interesting. And yet, in the Georgia scenes, you do have this sense that there's this community behind them. And so if something mm-hmm. did go wrong, you get the sense that the community would help to fill the gap. That's right. But then once they're in Chicago, it's the opposite. Right. There is no community. And then in, Diane Oliver touches on this in the traffic jam and then also in health service, the shame around the stigma around public aid. And it's almost as if the bus trip kind of operates as this bridge between their old and their new life. It starts with such kind Mm -hmm. of like wonder and hope. And then there's the incident with the white passenger that Nora falls on. And then it's just kind of, you know, the baby is car sick, like Mm -hmm. everything is kind of going wrong. And we're segueing into Chicago. And I think it's, you know, it's a commentary as well on this idea that I think some people maybe erroneously have about the Great Migration, um, which is that, you know, like Black people moved from the South and they went to these cities and then everything was free, everything was great, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's not quite that way. Right. <laughs> it wasn't quite that way. There was still struggle. There was still racism. Mm-hmm. It may have manifested differently, but it was all still there. Right. And just how fragile everything was. All it took was that, you know, obviously it's not a small thing, but the father not showing up and meeting them. But, you know, you see it from the perspective of people on the outside looking in. It's like, well, here's this woman with all these children. Right. And then, you know, and then there's the lens of pathology and so forth when there's a whole backstory there. You know, so there's systems at work, but then there's this family's personal story and it all hinged on this one man doing what he said he was going to do, but he didn't. And then their fates are, you know, forever changed. And when you were talking about the bridge, it it made me think about, you know, how she opens the story, which is, you know, the chicken, the the roosters, Mm -hmm. you know, and she can hear them and she can see them. And, you know, they've had these you know, chickens since they, you know, their family has lived in the house for however long. And then before they eat, leave, they eat the chickens. Right. And that also kind of gave me this sense of there's, there's no turning back. Wow. That something, you know, something is going to be lost. But at the time, you know, we didn't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I also found it interesting. There was a small moment where Nora is, I think she is either talking to or thinking about an old classmate of hers named Jimmy. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's talking about how Jimmy kind of stopped messing with her or talking to her when she topped him on a test Mm -hmm. or in a class or something like that. And I think that's something that Diane Oliver also is doing in her work is sort of talking about these gender dynamics and Mm -hmm. um, kind of about about male ego, which we see quite a bit of in Traffic Jam. And so it's all very complex and interesting, but the ending was sort of a punch in the gut. And again, as you said um, earlier, hints at that kind of note of resignation. You know, the way this Mm -hmm. story ends, there's a couple more paragraphs after what I read, and it's basically... 
uh, Nora going into logistical mode, the same as she mm-hmm. had been packing earlier and yes. getting her sisters ready. It's like, okay, so tomorrow I'm going to like call this person. I'm going to do that thing. And it's like you can feel her college dream just, just slipping away. Just slipping away. Because she has to spend money to make that phone call. So it's like the, we're starting to count down again. Yeah, it's, you know, there's so much meaning in, in those details in in that caretaking work that the women mm-hmm. do in the little decisions, the tiny mm-hmm. choices that they make every day. You know, the fact that the mother has to basically work overnight and then kills the chickens and Nora wakes up to the smell of her frying them so they'll have something to eat on the bus, like all these things, it's these small details that show you know, what it was to negotiate those times. So as you said, I mean, I think there's so many similar themes in in the next two stories. Yes. So the next two that we read, they're they're really companion stories. Yeah. They are, the titles are Health Service and Traffic Jam. And Health Service was published in November 1965 in Negro Digest, which is a magazine that um, was owned by Johnson Publishing Company, the publishers of Ebony and Jet. And I think she was, uh, Diane Oliver was going to have an internship with them upon graduation. She was. She was. And can we also just pay tribute to the moment where magazines like this published fiction? Right. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, do you remember when, you know, Essence used to publish? fiction they had a fiction contest I do and they stopped I remember reading my mother's essence magazine as a child and I remember this short story with a featured a black woman and it was the scene with her putting talcum powder on her breasts oh. and I that was like the blackest thing I had ever read in, in a magazine and then I don't remember any stories in essence after that yeah you know I what's that about I don't you know? know I don't know it makes me so sad because I remember they would also excerpt books that were coming mm-hmm. out that you were so excited yes. about. And I think I remember reading kind of like one of the sexier excerpts from Disappearing Acts in Essence. Yes. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> Shout out to Terry McMillan. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a tangent. Okay. Yes. To meet in health service, um, Oliver revisits those characters later in the story called Traffic Jam, which Negro Digest published two months after her death in July 1966. The archives of Negro Digest are freely available on Google Books. Um, so listeners, you can read it there. We're also going to drop a link in the show notes for that those stories as well. So just to give you a little background about each story, and then we'll talk about both of them. In health service, we meet Libby, who is a young black mother of five young children, and they range in age from infancy to just about to start school, kindergarten or first grade. So they're really close in age. And when we enter the story, she's walking with the children on a hot day to take them to get their shots. And she's not sure which shots they're supposed to have, but she figures that the people at the health clinic will know. Um, And the irony of the title here, uh, Health Service, is that Libby and the other Black folks who are waiting to be seen at the clinic don't actually receive um, good service. And in some cases, they don't receive service at all. Mm. Um, Libby and her children are scolded by the white nurse who um, repeatedly refers to them as you people. 
everyone at the clinic is at the mercy of this nurse. And, you know, we know she represents this larger system of lack of care. Mm. And so in the moment, though, Libby is struggling to wrangle her children who are understandably restless and bickering during this long wait. And Libby begins to anticipate their hunger as the day drags Mm -hmm. on. And she can't afford to feed them anything from the vending machine. So she's struggling to hold her little family together. Um, She's also struggling to hold herself together because she's parenting alone. Um, Her husband, Hal, has disappeared ostensibly to find work, but he hasn't kept in touch. And Libby doesn't actually know where he is. At this point, she refuses to apply for welfare and she frets over um, her children being unkempt in public. So she's very proud, but she's juggling more than anyone should have to bear alone. Yeah. So the excerpt I'd like to read is actually from the end of the story where, spoiler alert, they've endured all of this, but they don't actually get their shots. They don't actually get service that day. And so Libby and the children have left the, the, the clinic For an instant, Libby thought about keeping straight up the main street and walking around the shopping center. She hadn't been window shopping in ages, but keeping up with her children wasn't worth the trouble of seeing new clothes. Besides, it was way past time for them to eat, and the sooner they passed somebody's peach tree, the better. She shifted the baby to the other arm, caught hold of Wicker, who was walking slower than anyone else, and started home. So there's just, Mm. oh my goodness, this kind of wistfulness. And and again, that sense of resignation for her, for this young mother. And I just, you know, I feel like this is a story that could be written today, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. with the state of our healthcare system. Right. (laughs) You know, it could be written in any emergency room or urgent care clinic. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of heartbreaking, you know? I mean, and the fact that, what you said about her anticipating the children's hunger. Like they're not even hungry yet, but knowing that that's coming and those small mundane concerns that you have all the time, just how big they can loom Mm -hmm. for for this young woman. Yes, and and Diane Oliver was just a master at capturing the everyday and the mundane and those details that are small, but that speak volumes. And, you know, and I remember thinking, you know, how did she know, (laughs) you know, because as we mentioned, you know, she's writing about experiences that are not hers. Um, And I thought, well, maybe, you know, working at Head Start or even just, you know, family members and observations. So what this tells me about her is that she was a keen observer of people and and a sensitive observer of people for those kinds of very resonant small details to show up so powerfully in in her fiction. And as awful as that nurse is, there is a character that brought me a lot of joy. And that was a mm-hmm. secondary character named Mrs. Quartz in Health Service. Yes. She was an, uh, an older, elderly um, Black woman who just, you know, very simply offers to watch the kids while, Mm -hmm. you know, um, while Libby takes one to the bathroom, you know, she's just kind of there to sort of stand in that gap um, when, when Libby needs that help. And she's very empathetic toward her, which I thought was a beautiful thing. And as the nurse is the stand in for the larger idea of the health, health Mm -hmm. service, um, Mrs. Quartz is sort of the stand in, I think, for 
for the community. Yes. And you know, it made me, you're saying that made me think how all of these, all four of these stories that we're going to talk about, they all in a way could have been called neighbors, <laughs> you know, yeah. how our neighbors or how, you know, how the neighbors in, in these stories, how the community does and doesn't show up for each other and how the community shows up. And then, you know, when we are forced as black folks to rely on the state, you know, what does that look like? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we meet Libby again in a story called Traffic Jam, and a little bit of time has passed. Um, her oldest child has started school, and while Libby works, the next three oldest kids stay with Libby's mother, who we understand from both stories, you know, is in failing health. And then the baby, Calvin, stays with a neighbor, uh, Mrs. Dickinson. And where Mrs. Quartz in health service was helpful and kind, <laughs> Mrs. Dickinson, I, I really, I, I need, I would like square up with Mrs. Dickinson <laughs> because she's a neighbor who forces Libby to leave her baby unattended in a laundry basket on the front porch each morning <sighs> as she's on her way to work. She won't let Libby leave Calvin inside the house. She tells her that, quote, 630 was too early to be fooling with a baby. Mm. And also, quote, besides everybody around here has got too many babies to have to steal one off of my porch, which is ridiculous. But, you know, there's again this little a little bit of social commentary there that, you know, people are having too many children you know, this is a perspective that Mrs. Dickinson has, and she uses that to rationalize that harm won't come to this baby on her porch. Which is wild. Um, and, you know, and so this, so, you know, Libby has to leave her baby unattended and then go and um, work at the home of Mrs. Nelson, her employer. So Mrs. Dickinson is cruel to Libby in this way, but Libby's boss, a white woman named Mrs. Nelson, is even worse. She insults Libby. She talks down on Hal, who is Libby's absentee husband, and only gives Libby food to take home once it's spoiled. Mm, them um, cookies. The cookies it, that were too burnt up. Did. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, literally, I'm going to give you things that, are, that aren't fit for other people to eat. But, you know, this is sufficient for you and your children. Um, right. Take and so that and be grateful. Right. Yes. That, you know, she she expects so much gratitude from Libby. And I had said earlier, you know, that I wanted to one of the losses, great losses of Diane Oliver dying, you know, so young and, and so early in her career was that, you know, we didn't get to see what I think would be some more resistance from her women characters. But we see it here. We see the roots of it here. Libby sneaks away. She sneaks and washes her family's laundry when Miss Nelson is away. 
And Libby takes fresh food that she thinks that Mrs. Nelson won't miss. Right. So, you know, she's pushing back in that way. Miss Nelson, Mrs. Nelson is pressuring Libby to arrive earlier than scheduled. So she's already has to drop off her baby at 630 and leave the baby unattended. Miss Nelson wants her to come even earlier than that. And she routinely expects her to, to stay and work late. So in the occasion of the story, this particular evening as... Libby is leaving work late. Hal, the missing husband, appears. And Libby is both happy to see him and furious with him. Mm -hmm. He's come home with a new car that he expects Libby to be excited about. Again, I, I wanted to square up with Hal. Okay. Um, right? Instead, yeah. you know, understandably, Libby isn't excited about this car. She can only think about how they won't be able to afford gas for the car and how her children are practically starving. Hal is not only oblivious to all of this, but he has the nerve to be critical of Libby's parenting mm. and even violent towards her before the story ends. And I was, this is one of my favorite stories of the four we read. Um, and it was in part because I had such an emotional, deep re emotional uh, reaction to it, particularly this last scene. And she writes, the starting motor interrupted her thoughts, and then Hal was talking. I said, did you want to stop by your mama's before we go home? She did not answer. He seemed to have a knack for making her do things she never planned on doing. But if she wanted him, she had to want the car. There wasn't any sense in even thinking about fixing up the house. Now all their extra money would go for gas. But at least he had come back to her and somehow nothing else was very important. She settled back into the seat, her eyes drawn to the profile of his head, the hair closely cut, his eyes so intent on the road that if she would not have known better, she would have expected traffic miraculously to appear. Mm, that, that one line, if she wanted him, she, she had, had to, to want, want the, the car. car. That is my favorite sentence in all of the stories that we read because it mm. is just so, it knocked me out. Like, I mm -hmm. was like, it's true. It's so true for this story. It's such a keen observation of these characters, um, mm -hmm. these this couple and the relationship between them. And it's just heartbreaking, you know, mm -hmm. that like Libby doesn't... Um, she doesn't quite have the capacity to to dream a little better than that, you know, then I don't know. I, I, she wants the father for her children, of course, and, and she in order to keep him around and appease him, she has to show this excitement about the car, even though it's going to become a burden. She knows the burden that the car already is. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just in some ways. You empathize with Hal as well, because this car is sort of symbolic of something for him. It's meaningful to him in some way to come back and to have this very kind of um, symbol of where he's at and how he's doing and how he's been and kind of in his mind, it's supposed to quiet all those questions. And it's just, right. but the questions are still there. And so are his children. So who are he his wants, children. He, who he wants to have candy, but uh. meanwhile, they don't have actual food to eat. And I, you know, the sense of dread that I had, 
you know, when she said, you know, the part about wanting him, it triggered this thought that, and she's going to have another baby because <sighs> you know what's coming next. Uh... And again, like how deft, I can't say the word deftly, yeah, deftly, that Diane Oliver created that, you know, she's got us worrying about things that haven't even happened yet, but we know, we know what's on the horizon for for this, this character. And, you know, we've seen that she can resist in some ways, but will she resist, you know, against him? And I think, you know, as devastating as these stories end, there's also a brilliance in the endings in the sense that, you know, something that helps me to write my own endings is to not think of an ending as closed, but Mm -hmm. to sort of think of the ending opening up a whole new beginning into another story. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, just like you said, you know, we know what's coming next. She's, you know, they're probably going to have another baby. You know what I mean? That the fact that you can imagine that Mm -hmm. you're thinking about what comes next for these characters Mm -hmm. is sort of the brilliance of the endings. And I think the same is true in Key to the City, you know, like you can kind of like think about what's going to happen to these characters in Chicago now that Mm -hmm. they're on welfare. You can think about their living circumstances, all of these things. And, you know, when you mentioned Key to the City, it makes me think about... You know, and, and I don't think the word was tossed around during Diane Oliver's time, respectability, mm-hmm. because both Libby and the mother in Key to the City are married women. Right. And so, you know, marriage is supposed to convey respectability. Right. But based on the actions or, you know, failures of the men they're married to, they become women who lose respectability. You know, in Libby's case, um, he marries her, but he doesn't give her a ring. And right. so her mother slips a ring on her finger so that she's not treated poorly at the hospital or, you know, she's not viewed as a, an unwed mother in the hospital and really married. And so, you know, both Libby and the mother in Key to the City have large families. They have a lot of children and they are essentially raising them alone. And so we know the stigma that comes, you know, with with single motherhood. And so, you know, I think Diane Oliver is doing something really interesting here by saying, but these are women who, you know, they follow the rules. You know, they did things the way that, you know, society tells them to in order to have that respectability. And yet it isn't something that they can actually hold on to you know it can be taken away from them by no fault of their own and so i hope you know for people would sort of call into question why we invest anything in the idea of respectability um, for lots of reasons but one it's so flimsy yeah you just reminded me of the beginning of health service when libby is walking to the clinic and they stop and she runs into i think an old friend of her and Hal's and Mm -hmm. he's sort of shaking his head at her and like it's just so much judgment all the Mm -hmm. time and Mm -hmm. you're able really able um through Diane Oliver's writing to sort of feel what that judgment must have been like Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to empathize so much with these with these young women and we think (laughs) that that question comes up a little bit in a very 
you know, subtle way in the last story, Neighbors, right? Yes. So Neighbors, I think, is probably Diane Oliver's most well-known story for those who know her and probably most directly engaging with politics and social issues is a little less subtle, I think, than, mm-hmm. than the other stories. It was published in the spring of 1966 by the Suwannee Review, published right around the time of her death. And in it, she draws on that friendship with the first Black student to attend all-white Harding High School in her hometown of Charlotte. It's included in short stories of the civil rights movement, which is available uh, via Google books. And in Neighbors, uh, we meet Ellie. Uh, We meet her on a city bus. She's coming home from her new full-time job. So we're never directly told her age, but I peg it around maybe 19, 20. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And on the bus, she glances at a newspaper and she wonders if her family will be in the headlines again, as they had been when Ellie took a character, Little Tommy, to get his polio shot for school. So we get the sense that she's a caretaker in some sense to this little boy, and something about his schooling is newsworthy. And so Ellie dawdles when she gets off the bus. She's window shopping. She runs into a couple who tells her they have the family's back and to be careful out there. So again, we have this dread building You know, not quite sure yet what's going on, but are getting kind of putting the pieces together. And Ellie also runs into a friend of her, Sarah Lean, who is hanging out with her boyfriend. And there's some kind of silent understanding, I feel, between Ellie and Sarah Mm -hmm. Lean. And so on her walk home, Ellie stops by Sarah Lean's house and tells her grandfather, lies to her grandfather that she's working late. And the grandfather asks Ellie if her family is ready, if they're going to let Tommy go tomorrow. And so I think by this time I was pretty well aware what was happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Little Tommy and the family is supposed to go to his first day of school tomorrow, and he's the first Black child to integrate this school. And I think... Diane Oliver gives the school the name Jefferson Davis, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's familiar. (laughs) Listen, listen, you and I grew up in Jacksonville where they're, you know, my neighborhood school that I was zoned for was Robert E. Lee High. That's right. uh, Just recently changed its name to Riverside High. But there was, yeah, there was, there was all kinds. There was a Jefferson Davis, right? In Jacksonville? Was it that or was it Jeb Stewart? Because I was thinking that, but I think I might be conflating it with Jeb Stewart. Yeah. And there was another one for the the most egregious one, I think, was the, the KKK wizard. I forget what his... Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, right, because the the the, uh, the newspaper did a whole article. <laughs> about yeah. Right. Listen, so that that detail really, really hit home for me. So anyway, so the front part of Neighbors is a lot of foreshadowing about this family grappling with the decision of whether they're sending Tommy into what is essentially a war Mm -hmm. with desegregation. And when Ellie gets home, there are several men in the house who are meeting with her father. And there's her very anxious mother kind of bustling around. And Tommy is in the back room and he seems afraid and uncharacteristically quiet. And there's many ominous cars, including police cruisers, circling their house. And as Ellie observes everything around her and helps her mother and gives Tommy a bath and tries to reassure him about the next day, we learn, of course, that the family has been getting threats, as would happen. 
And Ellie discusses with her parents whether they should send Tommy. And suddenly a bomb is thrown toward the house and it hits the front porch. Um, It misses a more direct hit. And so it's kind of a close call. The family is shaken. The cops show up. Tommy, who suffered a cut on his face, is sent to bed. But nobody, of course, in the family can sleep. And the last few pages of the story are set in the kitchen, a very tense scene with Ellie watching her mother and her father finally making this decision about Tommy's fate. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from the end of that story. This is the parents talking. Jim, she said, sounding very timid. What we gonna do? Yet as Ellie turned toward her, she noticed her mother's face was strangely calm as she looked down on her husband. Ellie continued standing by the door, listening to them talk. Nobody asked the question to which they all wanted an answer. I keep thinking, her father said finally, that the policemen will be with him all day. They couldn't hurt him inside the school building without getting some of their own kind. But he'll be in there all by himself, her mother said softly. A hundred policemen can't be a little boy's only friends. She watched her father wrap his calloused hands, still splotched with machine oil, around the salt shaker on the table. I keep trying, he said to her, to tell myself that somebody's got to be the first one, and then I just think how quiet he's been all week. Ellie listened to the quiet voices that seemed to be a room apart from her. In the back of her mind, she could hear phrases of a hymn her grandmother used to sing, something about trouble, her being born for trouble. Jim, I cannot let my baby go. Her mother's words, although quiet, were carefully pronounced. And the mother does have the last word. Um, They decide not to send Tommy. And then as in most of these Diane Oliver stories we've read, we sort of, the ending kind of begins with the mundane again, with Ellie helping her mother make the oatmeal for when Tommy wakes up. So there's a lot going on in in this story. And this is the story where, for me, I felt the point of view was incredibly effective because we have Ellie kind of operating as an observer, right? And kind of like grappling with how she feels, but without being the character in the position of making the decision, but of course having opinions on the decision and being old enough to understand the stakes and old enough to have worries for Tommy. So I thought that was like the choice of character through which to view this story, I thought was really great. And a character that was close in age, I feel, to Diane Oliver Mm -hmm. herself, you know? Well, I struggled with that. (laughs) Yeah. I struggled because... Mm -hmm. I kept thinking that Ellie was Tommy's mother, his biological yes. mother, and not his sister. And it, and for two reasons in the story, there's one where you know she notes that he looks just like his father, but if they were siblings, then she would have said our father. Right. There was one, and then you know when the mother is when Ellie arrives and the mother is sort of saying where everything is, she where everything where everyone is. She's saying you know some other siblings are with one neighbor set of neighbors, and then she says your brother is staying elsewhere. Yeah. And then she says, and Tommy is in the back. And that suggests to me that Tommy is not Ellie's brother. And so in terms of point of view, if this is a child that Ellie gave birth to, and and we know that, you know, in the community during that time, it was not unheard of that if a young woman had a child, 
you know, unmarried for that child to be raised as a sibling and that child never knew. Everybody else might know, you know, we know of circumstances like that. I thought that that was what was happening here. And and just like it was unspoken in the story story. But I Mm -hmm. wanted something to suggest that Ellie might have felt like she had more of a say over what happened with Tommy because she did give birth to him. Right. Or if she was re- fully relinquishing all rights in that way, that we would have heard that too. But it was so unspoken, this, what I'm suspecting, that it left yeah. me confused and it distracted me from the story. And yeah. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is, you and I discussed this in kind of our notes on this show. And I will say on first read, I was very confused about the relationships in the family because although there are many moments where we get um, into Ellie's head, there's a distance there as well. There's Mm -hmm. always Mm -hmm. like her mother, his father instead of there or like... There are mo- there's one moment where it's like the woman addressed the girl or something. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so many strange moments of distance. And, you know, one of the things I said that we should discuss is, you know, as as promising and brilliant as, as Diane Oliver was, you know, the, the truth of the matter is she still had room for growth, mm-hmm. you know? And that's mm-hmm. part of the beauty of her story as well, is that you can see kind of those things that you know she would have kind of clarified. I'm still not sure if she's supposed to, if she was meant to be the sister or the mother. I think there's arguments for both throughout, but I guess my question would be, is that intriguing? Does it add another layer for you or is it just unexplored and frustrating? Yeah, and I think that's something we're always grappling with, you know, as writers is like, how do we want to use ambiguity? You know, does it serve to allow the reader to bring themselves and their experiences and their biases and fears? You know, is it creating space for the reader to make meaning and and develop understanding? Or is it just a source of confusion? You know, that can be a fine line. And I am gonna say something maybe a little inflammatory. But you know, this was published in Sewanee Review. The Mm -hmm. other stories we read were well, you know, one was published at UNC Greensboro. But you know, the two that were published in Negro Digest, I thought were her strongest. I agree. I wonder if you know, she was facing with Sewanee Review, what we sometimes face is that there's so much emphasis from white editors on the politics of what we're writing about and not Mm. the craft, Mm. not our craft. So I could be totally off base with that. That could be a totally unfair thing to say that happened. But that's just my, I'm wondering if that's what happened. Yeah, I want to get back to that. But I want to back up a second to something that you said about, you know, that ambiguity that we sort of grapple with, you know, how mysterious to be in moments. And I think as young writers, you know, when I was first starting, I think that we have this concept of the ambiguity being the brilliance somehow, that right. if we make it <laughs> opaque and difficult to understand, that it feels sophisticated. It's literary. It's literary, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it takes a while to get out of that way of thinking and just to make things 
plain and clear um, and just fully explore them, I think, is -hmm. something that ends up being more satisfying. But I mean, so this is the story that is, of course, most directly political. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got an intersection of real history into the fictional world. How do you feel about work that is that does that? Especially this particular story is written very close, I think, to to real history, to those Mm -hmm. events. And I often in my work integrate real history. Yes. Um, but I I get nervous when it's too close to the moment because I feel like I don't yet have the proper perspective to really mm-hmm. write about it in a way that feels resonant. And I'm just curious your your thoughts about that. You know, I always worry because I don't want my writing to ever be too on the nose. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, you know, one of the many beautiful things about your novel is that it was not on the nose, that we, that it was, you know, the history was the backdrop. It was certainly important, but it was the characters. It was their voices. It was their stories. It was their messiness that had me riveted. But we got that history, too. And that history was important. Without that history, you don't have the same story. So, Mm. you know, the history mattered. But you trusted us as readers that you didn't have to beat us over the head with the history, that it was just woven very organically into the characters' stories. And that's what I like. And that's what I try to do. I don't want to be didactic. I don't want to yeah. be ham fisted. I don't want people to see, see, this is where Disha did her research. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't want to see those seams. Right, right. right. Like, I yeah. know that your book was heavily researched, but I didn't see the seams. It was that seamlessness that I think oh, we're, we're going for. Thank- oh, thank you. Well, it's always a question that you hold in the back of your mind, um, how to write about these things without being didactic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I I do wonder how successful this story was in doing that. I mean, I think that, you know, there are things that happen that are a little on the nose, you know, the bomb being thrown and all those things. And at the end, you kind of almost have a f- philosophical conversation between the mother and the father. And yet, I think she does inject um, some emotion, especially watching the mother character and sort mm-hmm. of her resoluteness and in in the decision but it's it's a really hard it's a it's a really difficult balance to strike it also raises questions i think around gaze and this could have to do with you know who were her editors for these uh, different stories but we were inside of you know literally inside of a black family's home and there wasn't the intimacy. And I don't mean intimacy in the sense that, you know, the characters should have been more lovey-dovey or warm towards each other, because I think their lack of intimacy also said something about their relationship with each other, like what mm. kind of folks they were. But I don't know. I just felt like, you know, when I'm reading, I, I, I guess I just am so used to reading situations like that, where if it's really our gaze, it feels more familiar Mm, and mm -hmm. this the other stories and the other characters felt familiar these characters felt very distant and unfamiliar and kind of stilted but again that could be this is who those folks are but I don't know something it just didn't curl all the way over for me Mm, mm -hmm. well it's interesting to think about 
you know, what you just said, maybe these, maybe that's what these characters were. I mean, the family that is chosen, I guess, to be the family to go through this. That's kind Mm -hmm. of interesting to think about and what a family like that would need to be like in order Mm -hmm. to sort of be representative and respectable and all of those things. So that's interesting to to ponder it you know it kind of reminds me of you know the story of you know why was jackie robinson chosen you know right because he was not going to fight back physically you know and so that make would make total sense that this family was chosen for a particular reason but i really found myself wanting maybe a counterpoint to that like one of them i mean and the parents had a subtle disagreement but somebody to be like a bigger counterpoint. I don't know. It's like, you know, fiction life is more dramatic than real life. That right. felt so on the nose and just like yeah. subtle as opposed to creating more conflict. There was just there was a lot of conflict left on the cutting room floor, it felt like to me. There was a lot of potential. Well, I just read for the first time Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. And do you know that scene where Milkman and Guitar are sort of having this philosophical conversation about um, not civil rights per se, but about like what the community needs to do? Mm-hmm. And I thought that like you just made me think about that and how charged and kind of right. messy that dialogue yes. is and, and thus how real it feels and right. how kind of provocative it feels and you know there's it's it's not the same here but like i it just made me think about how as writers like we want to kind of craft those moments of dialogue where Mm -hmm. the dialogue is is trying to do so much like it's trying to show these two sides of an argument while also revealing character Mm -hmm. and being propulsive and putting all that effort into that dialogue Right. And it's like, what's at stake? And so on the surface, you know, what was at stake was this child's life, but we don't get to see him go to school. So there's got to be some emotional stakes, you know, because you kind of diffused, you know, Diane Oliver in in the choice that she made in terms of how it ended. You you sort of diffused that Mm. moment. And honestly, I read it several times and, and you know, I wasn't entirely convinced that they weren't going to send him. It just, yeah, Mm -hmm. it was so unclear. But the things they actually said, yes, it makes you think that, okay, they're not going to send him. But again, everything was so muted. There weren't, you know, that there wasn't that clarity. But if you, you know, once he's not, if he's not going to go what's at stake so there was no and and there was no sort of Mm. secondary conflict Mm -hmm. or stakes emotional stakes between any of the characters Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i thought there was a potential there because one especially if we thought that perhaps ellie was tommy's mother but what did you think about how when she spoke to her father when the door was locked I felt she was pretty bold. She's kind of impatient. You know, the door, you know, she Uh, can't get in the door. And it was just... Oh, right, right, right. When she first comes home. Yeah. And he's like, it's open. And she's like, I told you it's not. Right, right. I'm like, ooh, who texted that daddy like that? (laughs) So I thought, here we go. Something's there. And it just, it wasn't though. Right. When I did secondary reads of this story, I asked, of the story, a question that I often ask myself as a writer, because I often 
struggle with this. And the question is, does this story begin in the right place? Oh, yes. I had the same question. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about that? I had the same thought because I was like, I wanted to see this whole thing about, you know, the one set of neighbors where they decided not to send their child, you know, because there was there right there. There was some conflict. Could one set of parents confront the others and say, let's send our kids together? You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the question of, you know, Tommy being Ellie's son. So I, you know, I wanted to see more there was there a moment where Ellie tried to weigh in and her parents said this is not your call to make right you get all these you know pages and pages of Ellie on the bus and and walk her slow walk home and I think we're meant to be learning about Ellie as a young woman and yet it this question of whether she's Tommy's mother or sister is still a little unclear. And it's just kind of lacking the tension that such high stakes Mm -hmm. would require, I think. Yeah. And again, I wonder if it was like a white editor thing, like, oh, we have a moment where the young black woman is on the back of the bus. I mean, we would be like, so and, you know, (laughs) that doesn't tell us anything. It's 1964, you know. Um, Yeah. So again, who, who, who's gays? was driving some of the editorial choices that that she was making here. And we say all this and and I look back at my 22-year-old self and think I could never <laughs> I could Oh never god. write something that has so much promise. No. And I, the fact all. that we're discussing it at this level. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, my er- it's just <laughs> my early fiction was everybody had to end up in church at the end. So it I'm is- not one to talk about <laughs> nuance or where the story starts. <laughs> oh. But, you know, the bottom line for me in reading all these stories is that Diane Oliver, again, had so much promise, mm-hmm. young, gifted, and black. Yes. And I find myself thinking about where she would have gone in her fiction, mm-hmm. especially with her activist work yes. uh, and her fiction writing kind of dovetailing. And as movement sort of evolved, mm-hmm. how she would have evolved as a writer. Yes, so much promise, so much promise. Any other final thoughts you have on on what these stories sort of reinforced for you or taught you? I just how much I love reading about black women, (laughs) you know, in all the ways that we show up in the world. And it was, it's just heartening to know that in that era there, you know, there was this black woman who thought that the stories of working class black women deserved to be, to be told and to be told in a loving way. That doesn't mean that, you know, the characters aren't flawed, but in told in a way that treats them in their, um, holds them up in their full humanity. You know, I'm, I'm always down to see that. And so to, to know that it was happening at that point and, and it made me hungry for more, you know, and, and Negro Digest. Like, yeah. I feel like I could fall into those archives yes. now. <laughs> Absolutely. Now that I know that they're freely available on Google Books, I want to go back and see all the fiction that, yes. that they might have published. And I just, you know, I was thinking about where I see or hear echoes of Diane Oliver's 
voice. And I feel like there are so many YA writers mm-hmm. who are sort of doing a version of what she's doing with neighbors, you know, Angie Thomas mm-hmm. writing um, very politically, but also on a deep character level. But I also think about books like Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. Yes. And, you know, getting even more evolved and sophisticated in the complication of the characters and, and the situations um, that they're facing. So um, this was a really uh, beautiful thing to be exposed finally. Yes to these stories yes so shout out to michael gonzalez gonzo mike for shout out hipping us to diane oliver and thanks for joining us today if you enjoyed today's conversation and want more become an ursa member by subscribing in apple podcasts or by going to ursastory.com slash join you'll help us produce our original stories and you'll support our work on this podcast as we turn you on to our favorite writers and short stories. You can also support this podcast by leaving a review and a comment in Apple Podcasts. Until next time, talk to you later, Disha. Take care, Donnie.